What's up? Welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. This podcast is meant to give you a personal glimpse into the next era of investors and operators. This week we had on Jacob Peters, who is the general partner at House Capital and co-founder of Launch House. House Capital is the venture arm of Launch House. They invest 100K checks to support builders of the next Silicon Valley and all the portfolio companies also get lifetime access into Launch House. In this talk, we talk about how the younger generation is influencing investment, what the future of venture looks like, evaluating community-led companies, and non-obvious takeaways about what makes a community great. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Yo, everyone, welcome to the Confluence VC podcast. Uh, Today we have a really cool guest who is doing some stuff that we find to be very unique and different from any other venture folks. we have Jacob from Launch House, who is doing not only uh, a set of houses, but also some other exciting things. Jacob, you want to come in and maybe tell us a little bit about your background as an entrepreneur and in education, whatever it may be, and how that led you up to creating what you're working on now? Yeah, a- absolutely. Thanks for the tee off, Tyler. But speaking of unique and exciting, I've had a unique and exciting morning over here in LA. I actually had two birds fly into my house, and I just spent the past hour trying to chase them out. So it's been uh, an eventful start to the day, to say the least. I don't know if you guys ever had that happen before, but it's pretty wild. Um, no, but I'm into Loom, where I frequently see bats inside restaurants and like basketball stadiums, which is pretty, pretty interesting as well. That's, that's super gnarly. Yeah, I'll stick to birds. But anyway, quick backstory, TLDR and everything I've been up to. I guess, you know, in life and career to to connect the dots for everybody. So the common thread across everything I've been up to is is probably that of community. So I got my start building internet communities when I was just a teenager. So I was about 13 years old. And I was a teenager that never outgrew his childhood hobby of playing with Lego bricks, like the child plastic building block toy. So I discovered right around the age of 12 or 13, that there was like this massive online world of adults that were building these like multi hundred thousand piece custom creations of the blocks. And I just thought that was like the coolest thing ever. So I started getting super involved in all these forums. Next thing I know, here I am as a teenager, like managing groups of like tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of of people that were all these adult like Lego enthusiasts and adult Lego builders. Uh, And that kind of led me to starting my first ever I guess you could say business, which was all about exploiting arbitrages in the Lego market. So come to find out, we discovered that you could actually go out to places like Walmart and Target, you know, the big box stores, buy like dozens of Lego sets in bulk, part them out, take the individual bricks and then resell those bricks online for as much as like a 10x ROI in some cases on top of what you paid for the brand new Lego sets. We'd also do this with garage sales where you go around and buy kids used secondhand collections for like 50, a hundred bucks, part out all the individual bricks, 
and then sell them online again for like massive ROIs. So it was pretty cool, basically like having the opportunity to run basically what was like a six figure business as a teenager, just like buying and reselling Lego bricks online while simultaneously leveraging this kind of online community and forums that we created and, and, and run to, you know, to continue to further our, our Lego passion and Lego hobby and meet interesting people in the space. And I say our, because this was uh, done by me and my, my brother, who's just a year you're younger than me. So that's kind of how I got my start in, I guess you could say community building, business building, uh, and realize, you know, the, the, the power of what can happen when you bring people together, you know, online and offline in unique ways, uh, because beyond running these big forums of, uh, of Lego enthusiasts, I also discovered there was a bunch of IRL uh, conferences all over the world where different Lego builders would come together to actually like, showcase their creations at different conventions and things. So that was, I guess, my, my interesting foray into the business and community world. And that kind of, I guess, excitement for and energy for bringing people together followed me when I moved to New York after university. So I started working as a data scientist on Wall Street. I was uh, at a financial institution in a super quantitative role and basically got this idea to start building a community um, of other data scientists and quant professionals in the space that over the course of a few months kind of accidentally ballooned into what eventually became Manhattan's biggest community of AI and data science professionals. So here I was 22 years old, analysts on wall street, like accidentally running this group of like, it was like 5,000 people towards its peak of other folks that were all super interested and excited about data science. And we had a meetup chapter. We had a Slack group. Uh, we had a big newsletter. We were sponsored by Microsoft and the whole thing was sort of taking on a life uh, of its own, and it was sucking up a ton of my time outside of work. So this kind of marks a transition when I, I kind of went full force into Silicon Valley, you could say. And that's when I realized that I was at this unique intersection of an understanding of like how to bring people together from my time, you know, building communities of Lego builders online and at conferences, as well as building this data science community and it intersected with an understanding of how to build data products from my time working as a data scientist and a data engineer. So kind of being at that unique intersection, I realized that there was no great data products to make it easy to manage your community member data. So that was a very meta statement, um, but basically that was sort of the inspiration for my very first venture back company, which was a software platform called Comsor. Um, and to put it really simply, Comsor is basically like a, a Salesforce type system, but for sale or for, for community teams, excuse me, instead of for sales teams. So at the core, uh, we basically had a CRM that would centralize all of your community member data, put it in one place. We'd integrate with all the different community tools you were using, like Slack, uh, Discord, et cetera, and give you a full view of you know, what your members are doing, how they're engaged, who the most engaged members are, and, and things like that. So that company started off initially trying to sell to, to people like myself, but me and my uh, co-founder, we quickly realized that people like me had no budget and no money. And we were the absolute wrong target audience. So uh, we ended up moving towards enterprise. And now we're basically exclusively focused on that, that segment of customers with the team. I, I moved on and started LaunchHouse, which we can get into and, uh, in a second, but Comsor is now you know, close to a half billion dollar business in valuation. And I think we're upwards of 60 employees now, and it's on a great, great growth, growth trajectory as every business kind of wakes up to the power and importance of community. And one, I guess, like, really uh, powerful thing that I'd love to share about the way we built that business is uh, we did it community first. So we basically built community before product. So before we even really had any sort of like 
deep conception about what the product was at Comsor and, and the software platform and how it was going to play out. Uh, and before we even really raised a dime of, of venture money, we, we decided to start a community. I mean, my co-founder, we built this thing. It's now called the community club. We've rebranded, but at the time it was called community chat. And basically the idea was like, let's create a meta community for our target customer, which is the community builder or the community minded marketer. And that started off as a newsletter. It expanded to a Slack group. It's now a forum and a resource library. We have a cohort based kind of Lambda school course for community builders among a whole host of other initiatives. That's now, I think over 10, 20,000 members large, we even have a podcast and stuff. And we all wrapped it under this umbrella of community. And we basically started building that first before we, we touched a line, a true line of code on, on the product. And the power there was basically that we had $0 customer acquisition cost and like the majority of our leads in the early days came 100% inbound. So that sort of kicked off this like distribution engine that we owned and controlled. So that's kind of powered the, the business to this day. One of the big you know, philosophies that I ascribe to now that I've learned from starting that company from building launch house and advising, I guess, like scores of companies now on how to, to you know, build community, be community led is that uh, community is this superpower that, you know, can basically help you like unlock and own your distribution first before uh, you can even touch or you even have to touch a product. So community can really be this magical thing, especially in a world where most products are commoditized and code's really easy to replicate in a short period of time. But the one thing that you can't replicate is relationships. As we, as I segue now into the next kind of chapter of, I guess, my entrepreneurial life and career with Launch House and with, with venture investing, um, you know, that's absolutely a philosophy that, that we hold near and dear to, to everything that we do when it comes to in investing in businesses, as well as building out the, the community that we have at Launch House today. Yo, that's awesome. Really quickly, like we're going to dive into Launch House fully after this, but like for enterprises, I'm surprised that so many of them have a focus on community. Like how did you all see a lot of enterprises adapting and using the comp store software? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing, even though a lot of community uh, companies like have community, it's been really hard traditionally for them to define what exactly their community is, right? Because community is kind of this catch-all definition, right? If you ask 10 different people what they think comes to their mind when, you know, you say the word community, you'll probably get 10 different answers, right? To some people, it's a tool. To some people, it's multiple tools. To some people, it's a place. It's a feeling. It's a movement. It's this. It's that. You know, it's an audience. It's, it's whatever. So really what the, the core thing I think that Comstore helped a lot of customers do in the early days is basically just start to ring fence and define, okay, what even is my community? Like, how can I start to define this, you know, universe of customers and stakeholders, people that are interacting with me across all these different data sources and put it in, in one place. And once you have that data in one place, it unlocks a lot of powerful stories that you can tell as a business, right? So for example, if you're a big enterprise, say AWS, as an example, you're probably spending like 10, 20, $30 million a year on developer marketing, right? To, to get developers using your open source products or into the, your, your developer tool ecosystem. That's a lot of community budget. But at the end of the day, all that budget's only useful if it's driving enterprise sales leads and CTOs are adopting like enterprise versions of your product or they're getting a lot of usage. So by having that full kind of data story, it helps community teams and CMOs understand truly like, hey, what is the ROI of community? Like, is there, you know, actual bottom line results that we can tie back to all this budget and time that we're pouring into our community, community effort. So at the core, that's kind of one of the biggest, I think, stories that enterprise are able to tell with the software like Comsor. Got you. That makes a ton of sense. And I think people are moving more and more to that. And there are a ton of other measurable KPIs that are measured to or measured via and enhanced via community. So 
congratulations on the recent valuation in Series B. Congratulations on pivoting to Watch House, and let's dive into Watch House. Maybe tell us a little bit more, give us an elevator pitch, like where are you all now and what's happening next? Yeah, so Launch House has been around for, I guess, close to a year and a half now. And it's funny because we didn't start with any intention of building a business. It started with my, my, my co-founder, Michael Houck, who was laid off from his job at Airbnb. He, he was sitting, I think, in his San Francisco or New York apartment at the time and wanted to build just cool stuff with other builders. So he got this idea to rent a big Airbnb in Tulum with a bunch of other tech workers and entrepreneurial people that were in between things like myself, as he just left Airbnb, I just left Comsor. We were all kind of looking for our next endeavors and to meet new people. So he just kind of corralled a bunch of internet friends to come together and live in this house. So that was the founding story. We all went down to Tulum, lived in this mansion in Mexico. There was like 18 of us. And again, no intention of starting a company, but basically like on a, you know, it was like day two or three, my now third co-founder, Brett, he got this cheeky idea to put up a social media account and brand what we were, what we were doing as Launch House. And the, the name was effectively a farce on this idea of like the influencer mansions, which are pretty ubiquitous around here in, in Los Angeles, right? Where you put a bunch of creators in a house, they all go viral on social media. There was like the hype house, like Jake Paul's Team 10, all these different instantiations of it that have existed over the years. So we basically like took that concept and decided to personify it and marry that with a hacker house. So that's kind of where the name Launch House came from and was born. So initially, you know, people were tweeting about us, things were kind of going crazy on social media. And there was this idea that we should just do a reality show, right? Like what better reality show than 18 entrepreneurs living in a big house together, launching cool products, experiencing a lot of drama. There wasn't that much drama, but that was kind of how things started and where the initial energy catalyst for something more started to spark. So me, Michael, and Brett, we actually like, did get in touch with some of the studios. We were talking to some executive producers at The Bachelor. We had some connects at, I think, like Netflix and Hulu. So we actually flew a camera crew down to Tulum, Mexico to shoot a sizzle reel because we thought we were going to be Hollywood producers. Like, forget being, you know, Silicon Valley founders, superstars, or investors. We were like, let's become reality TV show producers. So that kind of became like the something on the experiment list that we were pretty hot on and, and excited about. But unfortunately, we realized, or maybe fortunately, we realized pretty quickly that was not our calling. Um, and the feedback we were getting from a, lot of, from a lot of the studios was that like the best entrepreneurs uh, who are actually destined to build like multi-billion dollar companies are actually completely opposite of the persona that makes someone best for TV, right? Like Clay Tyler, I don't know if you guys watch Shark Tank or ever seen any episodes, but like, you know, yeah. You have, yeah. The most memorable episodes are the ones where people make like absolute fools of themselves, right? Or the products are just like so laughably bad that, you know, it gets clicks and it gets a lot of social media hype. These two things like TV personality and drama creator and exceptional founder were just like too antithetical to one another to make for this to be a good TV show. Now it doesn't you know, mean that Launch House might not launch a reality show in the future as like an offshoot or an experiment. And not the brand is more established, but at the time we realized that was not our calling. So we pivoted to what the model is now, which is basically, there's a lot of analogies for it, but you know, to put it super, super simply, we're building like a new age institution for this like new era of a distributed Silicon Valley that's no longer San Francisco based. So what exactly does that look like? Well, today we run these kind of like pseudo accelerator style residency programs in different cities and online. So we've got LA, New York, soon to launch San Francisco. 
and, and online in our launch house metaverse locations. So we run those pretty frequently. And the idea is basically bring all the benefits of a community and a network and a venture investor and accelerator program together for early stage founders and builders, but without any of the downsides of uh, some of those misaligned incentives, which is obviously to own a big portion of your company. So we don't charge any sort of equity. We just charge a nominal membership fee in order to be a part of the community. So that's basically Launch House today, to put it you know, super simply. We're kind of like a new age take on Y Combinator. You could think of it almost like as you know, if something like Harvard University were started today and it was geographically distributed and built for the Gen Z builder and it was media native, it could could look like something like us or in other ways, maybe we're almost like potentially the, the next Andreessen Horowitz in some sort of ways, uh, given our focus on distribution and, and media. And I don't know if, if many people know this who are listening, but one of the big reasons why A16 was able to build a, a brand in the, in the undifferentiated, you know, capital space where capital is a commodity is they started by jumping on heavily into new media formats. So this was like back in 2008 when blogs and podcasts and internet video was just starting to be a thing. And they basically went full force hundred percent into a lot of those new media channels. And a lot of times people say that A16 is kind of like a media company and a brand first uh, and a venture platform and an investment arm second. So we can think about ourselves p- p- potentially similarly. So anyway, there's a lot of different directions that the future of you know Launch House and our investment capabilities can go in, but that's kind of the, the backstory and where we see ourselves going. Got you. Just as I think about it, are you all right now actually like still launching houses and stuff like that? Like in New York, LA, et cetera? Like yes. are there any folks who are going to be living in these houses or is it more like you just visit? Yeah. So the way to think about it is, you know, we do run, we run programs every approximately every 30 days. So we have 20 ish new founders come in to live in the house. Nobody's living there permanently. We kind of cycle folks through just again, like a cohort based incubator program. And the other big use for the house is that it's a really fascinating marketing tool for us because people in the city come to the house, come to our events. We treat it like a center of gravity in the ecosystem. So yeah, that's a, the, the use case for, for the houses. But our plan was not to have, at least right now, a launch house in 500 cities across the globe. But we don't want to be the next we work. Rather, we want to stay asset light and use our houses and our physical assets very you know, strategically to, to push forward our objectives as an organization. Gotcha. Also push back on one thing. You said that the people who are founders aren't great fits for TV. And I think there's a new revolution in TV right now, man. Like, I think that everyone was obsessed with like drug dealer TV shows, like the Narcos and the 50,000 copies of Narcos. But right now, like the Uber person has a TV show. The Theranos person has a TV show. There's billions. There's call it 20 other shows that are popping up. And if you all aren't going to get a Netflix or Showtime deal or something like that, please at least make a YouTube series. That would be so cool. Or like a Twitter, not Twitter, a TikTok series or something like that. I would love to have insight. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm totally with you. I think there's a few threads there that I think are really interesting to pull on. One is that tech has become mainstream and tech has become vogue, right? If you just drive down Sunset Strip here in LA, which is right where I am right now, like you'll literally see a billboard for the Theranos show. You'll see a billboard for the, the WeWork drama that's on... I think it's HBO, you'll see like we crashed in the, the Uber show, like people have demand for, you know, tech and mainstream culture, mainstream media. Elon Musk is the biggest influencer in, in the world. But I think the, the key difference is I think founders, it's really only makes sense for them to spend time on media formats that are going to generate a value add for their business. So things like YouTube and TikTok, 
on Twitter are, I think, places where it makes sense to build a, a video native media brand. And that's something that we have in the works launch house. We've done a bunch of experiments on, uh, on, on TikTok, YouTube. We have some bigger plans, you know, for how our media arm can grow and scale out in the future. And one, another way to think about the big vision for, for, for launch house is there's three components of the business, the way we, we, we architected it and we started one is the community, right? So this is a core, you know, cash flowing part of the business. And then two is media, right? So again, right now, like we've done some experiments on Instagram and TikTok and Twitter, but the idea is build almost like a morning brew style, you know, brand that captures a lot of attention in the tech industry. And then, you know, third is, is capital. So today we're launching a, a venture fund and a venture arm, but tomorrow that could look a lot different. We could have a bigger fund. There's a lot of different ways that we could take that. So I think the core idea though, is that when you combine capital with community and media, those are three really powerful pillars that work you know, really synergistically with one another. Because if you're building a community uh, then you, and you have great people, then you automatically have great stories that you can feature in your media content. And if you have great media content, that's going to be you know, a bigger top of funnel to attract better people for your community. Uh, and for getting better people in the community, that's also, and they're all founders, that's ultimately going to lead to better investment opportunities. And better investment opportunities equals more dollars, which you can then funnel back and profit to, to better the community, better the media, and kind of create this, you know, positive sum flywheel. So that's kind of the, one of the way, another way we're thinking about architecting things at Launch House as far as the three pillars of capital, media, you know, and community, and how they can work nicely together. Totally agree. I mean, speaking of capital media working well together, maybe we can use that to pivot into the future of VC. Like Clay and I believe that the next generation of VC is from like very outwardly facing, community-based, brand-driven, and then highly data-driven. Would love to take get your take on it. Um, in addition to how you see it, talk about how you think the younger generation of investors will influence it. Yeah, I mean, it's a fact that capital is a fungible commodity. Anytime you have an industry where the offerings are not very differentiated and products are commoditized, then guess what matters? Brand distribution and community. So at the end of the day, those are the, you know, going to be the three most powerful forces of the next decade and beyond that shape the venture industry. So let's unpack uh, a, a few of those. So brand first and foremost, right? Like what is brand? How do you think about it? You know, in my mind, it's kind of like, you know, the gut feeling that founders and folks get when they hear the, the name of your company, your firm, or, or your fund. And something really interesting that we've noticed working with a lot of young Gen Z founders is that the story, I guess, VC brands of the past, I don't want to talk badly about anyone, but I just, these are the first names that come to mind, but like the Bessemers of the world, right? The Kleiner Perkins, for, for whatever reason, the Revere and the stories and like the, the brand and that gut feeling has not translated or trickled down to this younger generation. From what I see, this generation values the brand of a, you know, Twitter influencer in the tech world that has 20,000 followers that they see on their Twitter timeline all the time, right? Or somebody that has like an amazingly designed fun website, Right much more than they would one of these like more treasured and storied brands in the VC world. So it all comes down to like familiarity. And the reality is a lot of these, you know, I guess older school brand names that are just in the VC world that have been able to rely on this revere that they've had. I don't think it's going to translate and trickle down to the younger generation of founders, investors, and are going to get excited. The other thing is distribution. 
right? So we talked a little bit earlier about how A16 operates like a media company, and that's very smart and very powerful in this, this new world where capital is commoditized. We're thinking super similarly at LaunchHouse, which is like, how can we build a media arm to showcase the best you know, and brightest stories of all the founders and the you know, happenings that are coming out of our community so that we can then build a big platform to offer that as a value add to founders. There's also like a ton of Substack newsletters that have launched VC funds off the back of it. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Packy and what he's done with Not Boring. He open sources all of his LP and like communications and fund memos and sends them through the newsletter. And it's just fascinating what he's been able to do in like the period of just a short year with deploying, raising a $10 million fund, deploying it completely, now raising, I think it's 30 to $50 million fun too, and doing it all off the back of his newsletter where like the big promise to founders and the reason he's able to get into good deals is because he'll write, you know, a sponsored post about them to his hundred thousand high caliber eyeballs and readers that have a high open and subscribe rate. So that's just fascinating how distribution and the ability to offer that as a value add perk to founders is changing the, the, the game. The other thing is community, right? So again, like if capital is commoditized and the product differentiation in industries low, like how can you differentiate? Well, you can differentiate on the basis of like relationships and emotions. And that's exactly what community offers. Community also offers the ability to tap into a network of resources to help with things like hiring. So that's a big, I guess, component of the future vision for launch houses. Let's start to build an ecosystem of different types of communities and for different builders and personas. So, you know, I think we just announced this recently on our our website, but we are launching a community for engineers called Hackhouse. And the idea there is like, let's, you know, replicate some of the offerings of LaunchHouse, but do it for technical builders and engineers so that when a founder comes in and joins LaunchHouse, they have an ecosystem of engineers that they can bring in to help them build their MVP, you know, or to make them their first hire or their co-founder CTO and things like that, which is in this day and age, like a scarce resource and a hard thing to, to do. So I think the funds that are able to offer community are going to be able to differentiate and outperform in the future. Another, I think, really interesting macro trend that's happening in, in VC is that we're moving to a world where like founders now have all the leverage. And this isn't just happening in Silicon Valley and in the founder world. We're seeing this you know, across all different types of industries, the music industry, the sports world. And the way I like to brand it is that like people that make the magic happen are now the ones that, you know, have the power and the leverage and they're taking it back from gatekeepers. To give you some examples, like in the past, like sports players had no leverage, you know, against the league, the NBA, the NFL owners. Now with social media, you have people like LeBron, you know, affecting like policy changes and rule changes in the NBA and taking social justice positions and things like just from his Twitter account right? Or his Instagram. It's really fascinating now the power and the leverage that the individual and the magic maker has and all of these systems where in the past, you know, power used to be, you know, controlled by kind of like the, you know, puppeteers and the gatekeepers. And it was very similar in the, in the VC industry. So to give you an anecdote, like, you know, 10, 15 years ago, founders would have to fly to San Francisco and go to Sand Hill Road, you know, these like big, beautiful, picturesque office buildings to pitch their startups to VCs. Now, you have investors traveling to places like, you know, the mansion that we run in Launch House at Launch House Los Angeles to pitch, you know, their VC fund to an amazing founder who's living in this like grand, uh, you know, establishment during one of our cohorts 
to like beg to get onto their cap table. We even run this these uh, events called reverse demo days at Launch House, where we literally have funds or investors or emerging fund managers come on and pitch a cadre of exciting founders within our community on why their fund is awesome and like why investors should take their check relative to the, I guess, thousands of other investors that are out there. So across the board, founders are now the ones, especially great founders, the ones I think with leverage, it can be a bit more bit picky and choosy, you know, about which investors they're going to, to want to take capital from. And they're going to zero in on the ones that, again, have a differentiated brand that speaks to them, right? That trickles down. Ones that can help them with distribution, getting their first customers, getting their name out there, as well as, you know, offering community, which can be just such a valuable network for all things hiring and, and connections since building a company is such a multiplayer experience and a multiplayer game. Yo, you're on point. Definitely on point. I think that one, please tell me when you're raising your fund, maybe I'll like, like what the details are. Maybe I can be an LP to you. And two, like <laughs> Confluence and Launch House to find some ways to collaborate or at least get some of your folks and stuff on the podcast. This is so cool. You were very early to community and building it around Launch House. What was your original thesis in constructing your community? Maybe that's the type of members you all are focused on. Maybe that was your method of scaling that community or whatever it might be. Like you take direction there. And then how has that evolved? And like, what have you learned since doing it? Yeah, so I think one of the things we realized very early on with Launch House, you know, is that, look, actually the, the founder community space is it's pretty crowded, right? There's 150 some major accelerator programs, maybe five that anyone's even ever heard of, right? One that everyone's heard of, I see, and tons of different communities like Launch House, hundreds of different founders, Slacks, and things like that. Now there's like literally a Discord community and a DAO for seemingly everything. And that was just a year and a half later. But even at the time we started the community, like the market for, I guess, like resource networks for founders, is actually pretty crowded. But if you think about the spectrum of like, I guess, the utility that those communities offered. On the far left end, you have things like YC, which at the time, since it was during the pandemic, was like 100% remote. You have OnDeck and all these discords, like they're all digital first, digital native. And in the middle of the spectrum, you had some communities that were kind of digital first, but then they do things like host meetups and made or they'd have dinner parties or things like that. Basically like community for a night or community for a weekend. This is also big in the crypto industry, right? You have conferences where the whole crypto industry converges on a city for a few days. But again, it's temporary. It's ephemeral. And what we realized with Launch House, and I'd love to say this was like highly intentional from the beginning, but admittedly it was a bit more like an accidental discovery. But we realized that like on that spectrum of like, you know, kind of, I guess community utility and offering, we were on the very far right end. So again, on the far left, it's like, I guess, community like that's fully digital in the middle it's kind of hybrid community digital in person and we here we were over on an island on the far end of the spectrum literally like recreating the stanford dorm room experience but like in a house and like in a mansion <laughs> we were literally eating sleeping breathing with 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 founders and with community members so it was like the most extreme form of like physical community possible uh, and what we learned is that that just creates like immensely strong bonds and trust between people. Uh, and that's something that like, you know, you'd never, or it's really, really challenging to replicate in any sort of digital community. I went through OnDeck as an example. It's a great community, love OnDeck. I'm an investor in LP in their fund, but the cohort that I went through, it was like 150, 200 people. And like, 
I, I as, as great of an experience as it was, like I can't say I need deep relationships with more than two, you know, but with Launch House, living in a house for a month, you basically become best friends with like 20 really exceptional people. So I guess the density of your ability to make these sort of like high fidelity, lasting connections and friendships, and because that obviously precedes business connections, it was just like unprecedented from what we were doing. So we basically learned like that was sort of the magic. And the key is basically maintaining that as we scale. Something interesting about our original thesis that we, we learned and had to, to pivot from was we thought that it was a natural expansion since we started in Los Angeles and we had our first few you know, programs that we were running out of here to expand from founders to creators. We were like, hey, let's take the magical offering that we are providing to our founders and let's like expand that to creators and add another building block to the ecosystem. Right. So now we're doing the same thing, but for engineers, and we realized that that's a much better place to start than, than creators. And the challenge trying to replicate our offering to creators is that, like I said earlier, being a founder is inherently a multiplayer exercise. If a hundred other founders and you're building a company yourself, then you now know a hundred other people that you could sell to. You could tap into their networks to get intros to investors. Some of them could become customers. You could hire some of them. You could sign partnerships. You could get advice, et cetera. But if you're a creator building like a YouTube brand or something like that, and you hundred other creators, it's a lot more nebulous how exactly that can be helpful to you, right? Because a lot of these people aren't like building massive teams and companies, but for scale, they're basically like on more of a content treadmill to produce and doing things like brand deals. So it's just a fundamentally different game that didn't translate as well. So we kind of had to go back to the drawing board. Uh, this is around this time last year and just double down on our offering and our community for founders exclusively and not go down the creator route. So we basically did that, you know, for close to a year. And it's only now have we started to, you know, expand our offering at Launch House to other types of, of people. And the first one, again, is, is Hack House, which is basically like Launch House for, for engineers and for technical founders and technical builders. Uh, that's really, really cool. We need to be taking more and more notes from you all. Like Clay and I had some debates about in-person versus fully digital events and community building and like what the values are, but like the way you all went about it was incredibly interesting. And uh, I think the results are clear. I'm curious on our end if there's a way for us to like find some type of sponsor to sponsor the spaces for us versus us coming out of pocket and finding ways to, to get it back. Were there any ways that you all were able to offset some of the cost? Yeah. So, I mean, we have a lot of partners, but I think something interesting that we're going to see in the future that you guys could even think about and tap into is like temporary spaces. So there's a lot of startups now that are out there that are basically like offering commercial space as kind of a service. It's, it's not where you work where you rent out a more permanent office space. It's kind of something in between that's like much more asset light and it's almost like a subscription. And I think a lot of communities are going to realize that they need some sort of slightly more permanent physical experiences for their members to keep them happy. So we'll see that happening more and more. Even a lot of the big crypto communities and like NFT projects literally have this on their roadmap. I don't know if you guys uh, have been following the, the Bored Ape community's expansion plans, but they, they literally have a roadmap that says like they're going to be building some sort of in-person clubhouse for ape holders in Miami which would be epic. And I may or may not be an ape holder myself. So I'll, <laughs> that, I, that's personally exciting. But yeah, I think that communities will start to do things like that as they realize you know, the magic of, of IRL. And we were in a fortunate position to pioneer this idea that like a community could have a permanent physical instantiation. Like I literally see like pitch decks now for companies that are like, hey, we're building Launch House for X or like, hey, we're inspired by Launch House or we're going after this segment of the market that launch has isn't going after you know, and whatnot. So we kind of accidentally pioneered this new movement, which 
interestingly, I don't think would have happened if it, the pandemic hadn't hit, because you know what we were doing during the pand- during the height of this global pandemic, when ninety nine point nine 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 percent of people were just like stuck in their Manhattan or San Francisco or wherever houses and apartments, doing nothing, like sad and bawling about the state of the world in quarantine. Whereas like we were out here in a COVID bubble in these massive mansions, broadcasting our hacking and our building on, on social media. So it was just like so contrary to everybody else's lived experience. And I think it built so much kind of like FOMO and excitement as a result that it wouldn't have had as much, I think, of a culture impact on the tech industry if this had happened now, for example, right, where the world's more open back up. So we kind of made a splash and the timing was, was perfect and like uniquely enabled by the pandemic. Gotcha. Last question. You all are becoming investors, doing a fund. How do you evaluate community-led businesses? And in addition to that, how do you generally think about your fund? Yeah, so we are building a fund. And the thesis is we're not just going to be constrained investing in lunch house companies. So we're investing in companies that do come through our programs, as well as interesting companies that you know, enter our orbit outside of Watch House. And the traditional venture fund, they have to rely pretty much on like their 2% management fees in order to build out a platform, build out value-add resources for founders and kind of cover all the on the back office things and magic that it takes to keep a venture fund operational and, and successful. But the unique way that we're structuring our company is that we'll actually have access to the venture-backed Launch House balance sheet as you know a pool of capital to build our kind of VC platform from, right? And we also have the launch house, community launch house programs to get our deal flow from. Whereas most funds, they have to rely on the the management fee. We not only have management fees in order to keep things afloat, we also have this, I guess, massive cash machine, which is the launch house community, as well as like our our balance sheet and all the resources that that come with that. So it's kind of a, a unique, I guess, advantage in the sense that we can offer much more, you know, value add as far as like distribution and community and services go to founders than, you know, a traditional fund of our size. And as far as thinking about community, my, a lot of, most of my experience comes in the form of like community in the B2B space. So I think that, you know, anytime you can build a, you know, a community of like your customers or target customers or stakeholders, like it's just like a great indication, a market where people literally want to just pull a product or something out of your hands. The other thing about community, as I talked about with the way we built Comstore is that if you do it right, it can basically, you know, be an own distribution channel, an own distribution engine so that you never have to rely as much on paid or inorganic sources. So, you know, a lot of your customer acquisition in the early days can be like zero, basically, and all inbound. Community also works well in the B2B space when you have a super fragmented universe of target customers where there's benefit to those customers interacting and connecting with, with one another. So in the example of comps, we aggregated this like super fragmented universe of community managers and community builders. So you'd have the head of community at Twilio and Dropbox and you know Airbnb and all these different companies and none of them were talking to one another. And they weren't necessarily, it wasn't necessarily competitive for the head of community at Dropbox to be talking to the head of community at Airbnb. There wasn't like this um, information asymmetry that was built into the industry. And it's like positive sum for both those types of people to be connecting and interacting with one another, right? They're both going to get better at their jobs by being able to you know share resources and share networks. Uh, and shared learnings and things. So community works really well in those types of spaces, especially where you can build a community around like a very specific niche, like B2B persona, because communities do best when you're able to build them around somebody's like core sense of identity, 
right? That's another reason my founder communities like Launch House do so well is because like when you're a founder, like that's your whole world, right? You are an entrepreneur, you know, like you feel like you have this destiny to help impact the lives of, you know, thousands or millions of other people by the software and the technology and the products that you're hoping to build, you know, and that's a very, I think, reverent cause. So these types of people, they generally like gravitate towards communities um, and communities for those types of people can be very sticky. It's the same thing with, you know, B2B personas in any sort of industry, whether you're building in like the HR space or the community management space or the financial analyst space, all these types of industries are great to have communities built around products in because your job is like your livelihood, right? Your job is what puts food on the table for, you know, you and your family. People are very passionate about their careers. The best people I think are the ones that are able to like really go deep and kind of marry their career, their passion with their sense of self. So I think anytime you can build a community in spaces like those, a B2B world, your company has a great chance of success. And I definitely like the pattern match and look for those types of startups. Thank you. Super, super valuable and helpful. I feel like we're, we're starting to take up some of your time. And I also feel like I always feel miss Clay's voice. How about you get a chance to ask us anything you want in the entire universe and we'll answer honestly. And then Clay, take us into our quick fire questions. Oh, so I'm the one asking the questions. I can ask Clay something. <laughs> You can ask us anything in the world, man. You can ask us like, what color are our five toe socks? I don't care. But like, <laughs> we will answer them 100% transparently. How do you clean bird poop off of furniture when birds invade your house? Uh, <laughs> that's a problem I now have to deal with. No, I'm kidding. But in all seriousness, something I'm curious about is, uh, is how do you guys think the future of venture is going to evolve. What do you think is going to be top of mind for founders and investors over the next 10 years or so? Hey, you got this one first. Oof. I'm going to try to not repeat back everything you already said to us, but I feel like the way that you guys have designed Launch House is like pretty similar to how we've tried to design Confluence. We think that, I mean, we don't have the capital, but with community and media, like we kind of saw a while ago, like the funds that we respect and looked up to five years ago, they're the ones that have really invested in those two aspects. And now it's a huge competitive advantage for all the portfolio companies why other founders want to work with those types of funds. I think that's only going to continue. I also think LPs are probably just going to realize that a lot of the emerging managers they're backing, this is a personal opinion, but I think that a lot of the LPs that are being back right now without a track record with like literally only an audience, like no real experience in venture. I don't think that they're going to beat the market and I think LPs are going to get burned on it. So over the long tail, I think that there will probably be a consolidation of capital to the funds that are investing in those three pillars that you said earlier, which is capital, community, and media. But that's just my opinion. I could be totally wrong. There could just be more and more funds pop up, but I think there'll probably be some type of consolidation within the next five to 10 years in terms of the number of funds launched. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm totally with you. Um, it'll be really interesting to see how it plays out. Another thing is I think there's going to be a lot of structured structural challenges to the standard sort of regulated pooled vehicle model that most funds are doing, right? Like Sequoia was one of the first traditional venture funds to break out and say, hey, we actually think the venture model is flawed um, and we're going to become an RIA, 
right? And becoming like a mm-hmm. long steward of capital and having a fund life of way more than 10 years is actually, you know, the best way to do it. So I think we're going to see an increase in the number of, I guess, RAAs and people that want to issue this old school, like pooled vehicle structure. I also think that especially as more and more companies start to exit to the crypto markets, I guess investment vehicles that sort of look like DAOs or look like hedge funds with way less structure are going to start popping up, right? Because if a company exits directly to the crypto markets from day one and has a token at the beginning or a token very early on in their life cycle, like seed or series A, then anybody can start to invest in that, right? Like mm-hmm. and you no longer have to be like a venture fund. I mean, you just kind of have to make your own bets and call your own shots. So I think all of that married with the kind of rise in crowdfunding anybody can raise around from their customers with Republic or Refunder and things like that, which in the past used to be a negative signal. And now I think it's, it's a powerful one. If you can prove that your customers literally want to have so much skin in the game that they not only want to buy your product, that they also want to like own a slice your business. That's powerful. So I think lots of interesting stuff in the future of venture. I could probably, I'd love to talk for another 20 minutes on this, but I know you guys are probably busy, so we can cut it here. <laughs> but thanks for, for teeing it off, Clay. Yeah, dude, 100%. We, we should probably schedule another time because I feel like we're in the same, I mean, it's something we obsess over all day long too. And you obviously have your own thoughts on it, but I feel like we're directionally thinking about it pretty similarly. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going um, to hold my comments for our conversation. And we should we actually should follow. We should find more ways to collab and talk more about your fun and all these other things. So uh, maybe yeah. like in the next few weeks. Quick yeah. fire, like, please go. Yeah, yeah, let's do Quick it. Five. So, Jacob, we got these four questions at the end meant to be answered in two sentences or less. First one is, what is a recommendation you hear regularly that you think is bad advice? That warm intros are the best and only path to getting in touch with an investor. I think that unique cold pitches can be 100 times more powerful, and I'm living proof of that. I know this is more than two sentences, but like four and a half years ago, I knew no one in Silicon Valley, and I kind of cold emailed my, my way into existence. So, warm 100%. Intros are, yes. Warm intros are cool, but they also suck, like good and bad. In the last year, what new belief behavior habit has most improved your life? The adoption of an alter ego. So my name is Jacob Peters, and all the time people accidentally call me Peter Jacobs. Because (laughs) once I was reading this article about like Beyonce, she used to get really nervous on stage and she adopted this like alter ego where she'd say, oh, I'm this other person. And then she'd perform a hundred times better. I can't say I've had that many nerves, but I just thought it was an interesting psychological experiment. So I decided to start like saying, I wake up in the morning. I'm like, I'm no longer Jacob. I'm Peter Jacobs. And I I swear, I I don't know (laughs) what, but I'm so much more productive, happy, healthy. You know, I, I execute better when I go into that mode of thinking. So that's been pretty transformational. Yeah, that is deep. Do you, do you bounce back and forth or you just nope today I'm Peter, <laughs> tomorrow I'm Jacob? I think I've gotten to the point where the confidence boost that I got from saying that I'm Peter Jacobs, it's now become just integrated into my being. So like they've kind of merged and I, I, I am Jacob Peters and simultaneously Peter Jacobs. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's the first, that's the first time I've had that answer. So I love it. What is one piece of advice you'd give to someone starting a company today? All right. I'll actually keep this one, two sentences, but, uh, Build community before product. Retweet. Couldn't agree more. I'll leave it at that. And then last one is if you had one ask for our listeners, what would it be? Follow me on Twitter. No, I'm kidding. Um, but <laughs> really, uh, I, I think that avoid microplastics and environmental chemicals 
like the plague. I've, you know, been on a really big health binge lately. And I've realized that these things are literally in everything. Just yesterday, I replaced my toothbrush and my toothpaste with like bristles and a toothbrush that was made of bamboo and like castor bean oil because, and, and toothpaste that was in a glass jar. Cause I realized that like, I was really exposing myself almost a thousand times a year. If I brush my teeth two to three times a day to all this unnecessary plastic, which is like really harming your hormones and your natural body state. So avoid that stuff if you can. It's in everything, but there's a lot of natural products and solutions out there. Dude, hell yeah. I've been on the same grind recently. I got a bamboo toothbrush as well. Uh, went deep into the microplastics, xenoestrogens, like everything in modernity, just like messing with hormones and like having secondary effects that a lot of people aren't able to see right now. Um, I sound like a crazy person to a lot of my friends, but it sounds like you've been reading the same stuff. So I'm, I'm red pilled. So that's another yeah. conversation. We're definitely- <laughs> yeah. oh I can talk about that probably longer than I can talk about the future adventure. Cool, man. That wraps it up. Yep. All right, brother. Appreciate the time. Love. Yeah. Huge thanks again to Jacob for coming on this week. Hope that each of you were able to pick up something valuable from this talk. If you're looking to get in touch with Jacob or the House Capital team, we've linked that info in the description below. And you can also find Jacob's contact info at Confluence BC directory. For next steps, if each of you have not submitted your info to become a member yet, you can do that through our website at www.confluence.bc. And also, if you want to become a subscriber to the newsletter, we offer a ton of free resources in there each and every week meant to help you become better at your individual roles. You can subscribe there at www.confluence.substack.com. Hope that helps. Hope to hear from you all soon.